Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly got a little fact about myself to share with you. Add to my trading card collection. I know. It's... That collection has grown far too large. <laughs> but here's another one. Okay. So in terms of my knowledge of movies, mm-hmm. contemporary movies, I got some gaps. I've I noticed that. I got some big gaps in there. Yeah. All right. One time I said 10 points to Gryffindor and Kristen had no idea what I was talking about. All right. You know what? <laughs> Harry Potter, that's another. That's just a side note. Nay, hey, I just got that reference right now. So maybe I'm not so behind the times as you think I am. But... If you were to rewind and give me some kind of, oh, I don't know, 1950s uh, musical number something. You can bust it out? I can bust it out. So you're saying old movies. Old movies. Is where it's at. What I'm trying to say to you, Molly, is that I grew up watching a lot of old movies. One of which was The Seven Year Itch. Starring Marilyn Monroe, of course, and Tom Ewell. And it's about this guy whose family leaves town for the summer and he stays in the city, I guess, to work. I haven't seen it in a while. And he has this super, super foxy neighbor, Ms. Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. This is also the movie with the famous scene where she's standing over the subway grate and right. the wind blows up her, her dress. And he's very tempted to have an affair with her Mm -hmm. because she's Marilyn Monroe. So, of course, you would want to. Hence the whole the seven year itch. Right. I think uh, the work he's doing is he's editing a book Mm -hmm. by some crazy doctor and the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist has a theory that uh, men are tempted to stray after exactly seven years. So at the at the very time he's dealing with this super foxy neighbor, to use Kristen's words, He's got uh, this book in front of him, which says, oh, this is natural. You should feel this way. Now, let me tell you, though, when you are maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years old <laughs> watching this movie. I mean, this movie went straight <laughs> over my head. I remember thinking that it was I was like, I, I don't really know what the buzz about this about this new Tommy Ewell movie is <laughs> um, as I sat drinking my tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that little vision of little Kristen not understanding the seven year age is classic. How, what, how many stars would you give it? Uh, you know, but again, Molly, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But of your memories. Of my memories, uh, you know, out of five stars? Sure. Okay, little Kristen would probably give it I'd probably give it three stars because I did really like Marilyn Monroe movies and it was in color. Oh, okay. and, and it had some good, good costuming. So when you're, when you're a little kid comparing black and white to color pictures, do colors always get an extra star? Yeah. And Technicolor gets a star and a half. Okay. Anyway. So I didn't get seven year itch back then, but today, today you're all grown up. We're, I'm all grown up. I get the innuendos finally and. We know so much about the seven year itch. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about whether or not this really exists. Right. Because I think you, you see it all the time in newspapers. I mean, they've used it for baseball players who are leaving teams after seven years. They use it when marriages break up. Uh, it's become just this very common term in the lexicon, the seven year itch. The after seven years, you've got to move along. And the reason you've got to start with this movie is because the whole reason this phrase is in our vocabulary is because of the movie. Originally, when uh, the play started as a play, 
uh, when the guy was running the play, the main character had been married for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it was only because he used to work as a joke writer for this hillbilly comedian who used to say something like, uh, I know the girl's over 21 because she's had the seven-year itch four times. Seven-year itch meaning some weird skin disease, mm-hmm. which was its common usage before the 1950s when this play came out. Uh, he just borrowed the term from the comedian and changed the character's marriage from 10 years to seven. Yeah, so we have George Axelrod to thank for that. The playwright, The playwright. But William Sapphire in the New York Times, the linguist, Mm -hmm. tried to go back and see where Axelrod even got that seven-year itch. And he goes all the way back to, I think the earliest date that he gets is... 1854 with Henry David Thoreau, who writes, these may be but the spring months in the life of the race. If we have had the seven years itch, we have not seen the 17 year locust yet in Concord. That is, I think, my favorite Henry David Thoreau impression ever. I really wish you'd been around when I read that book in college. It is very authentic. Um, so yeah, but Thoreau doesn't really explain what that means. Yeah, as, we got nothing from that. With most things that Thoreau tries to explain. Um, I don't know why I've got such a hang-up on Thoreau. Um, but yeah, he traces it through some other uh, usages in the early 1900s, and it always sort of means this uh, unidentifiable illness. Yeah, I liked this one. This is from Carl Sandburg um, in the 1936 poem, The People, Yes. And the line is, may you have the seven-year itch, was answered, I hope your wife eats crackers in bed. So it's something annoying. Yes, it's a little pest. It's a pest. And it's only because uh, seven is used so often biblically and in, uh, you know, repetition. And this comedian picked it up, used it in the joke and inspired uh, Axelrod, the playwright. So I really have the comedian, Henry David Thoreau, and the playwright to thank for this common phrase. And all rooted in the Bible. And all, yeah, exactly. Going back to the Bible's obsession with the number seven. And, uh... You know, the question then becomes, did they hit on something accidentally? Is it actually a real phenomenon, particularly in a relationship? Because here we go, people get ready. In the United States, the median length of a marriage is roughly seven years. Oh, my goodness. It's like all those people were just genius. It's like Henry David Thoreau. Knew something was about sitting to alone in a cabin. He On was Walden like, pond. "If I were married, I bet it would only last for seven years." So I'm just gonna hang out by myself on this pond. <laughs> and Nero was onto something. Not pay my taxes. <laughs> now, if a marriage does cross that seven year mark, all right. So if uh, we get, let's say, we get to ten years, mm-hmm. research has also shown that you will have already gone through two. Major slumps. One of which does happen at seven years. Yes. So they're saying the people who stay married for that decade, they have to weather that slump. But the first slump comes at around four years. That's when the honeymoon effect is gone. Right. And they were really surprised to find this slump that, you know, after four years. Only four years. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing. You haven't even used your China a whole bunch yet. I know. But anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, after four years, there's this big slump, and uh, it may be because, you know, you're getting used to your roles. Maybe marriage has lost its luster. Maybe you've started to have children. So in this first slump at four years, they're saying that, you know, the passion might have dimmed a little bit. You mm-hmm. can't maintain that level of passion forever, as we've talked about. Um, you're getting used to your new roles. Maybe now you're getting a little bored. 
that's the first slump. And then it might pick back up as you start to have children, as you start to, you know, get get in your groove. And then again, it's going to go down at seven. Yeah. So the, those are the two main hurdles that a newly married couple has to look forward to. Now, backing up this idea of that four-year slump, we have one of our favorite mm. women in the world, noted right. anthropologist Helen Fisher. Right. And it did not surprise Helen Fisher that these researchers in 1999 found those four and seven year slumps. She would argue that instead of the seven year itch, we should call it the four year itch, Mm -hmm. which, again, is not very uh, enchanting to think about when you're getting married. But she's looked at a bunch of societies, collected data on 160 societies. And in all of these societies, marriage is valued. You know, they all are getting married. And they part around four years. That's when divorces peak. And so, you know, while we said the median of American marriages is seven, there are a lot of these marriages they're saying where the parachute doesn't open, to borrow uh, one one phrase from one of these articles. And she's saying, Helen Fisher is saying that there's a reason why that four years is significant. And it goes back to one of our favorite topics of discussion, evolution, mm-hmm. and our, our early human ancestors. And Fisher points out that... In the olden days, we go back in time a little bit, that uh, a woman and a man would have a child, that uh, the child being a human baby is sort of, you know, subject to the elements. It takes a lot of parenting to get a kid to be a toddler, especially back then Mm -hmm. when survival rates were scarce. And human births were spaced out four years apart because the woman would have the child, she'd breastfeed, they would get it to become a toddler a little bit more uh, self-sufficient, not really, but, you know. It was, it was, had a better chance of survival. Yeah. And then she's saying that to ensure genetic diversity among your children, to give, uh, all your children the best chance at survival, you wouldn't want to just have another baby with that, that same gene pool. Right. You'd want to try a different gene pool because maybe that could be even stronger and cooler you and need smarter. To, you'd want to mix up the major histocompatibility complexes, clearly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, so what they would do is at four years, the kid could uh, probably be taken care of by, you know, the village. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't need just his mother and his father anymore. So at four years, the mother and the father might go have a child with someone else. Sure. So she's saying that what's been passed down to us is this desire to have a child with someone new every four years. And a lot of times these divorces will happen at the height of our reproductive years. Mm-hmm. So Fisher thinks that we are just biologically driven to want to maybe split up, maybe see somebody new after after a handful of years. I mean, think about how many things we've talked about on this podcast, Kristen, that are driven by some subconscious desire to give our child the best genetic makeup it could possibly have. I mean, we've talked about how just smell, as you talked about with the MHCs, it drives it drives our attraction to other people. So she's saying that, uh, if this four year mark somehow subconsciously in our body, we know that's the time in which we've had a child, got it to the age of four or five where it can be taken care of by, by relatives and friends. And, uh, then it's time to move on. Right. And, you know, if we think that four years is a short amount of time to start getting the cold feet, there was another article from 2007 in the New York Times that covered research on a three year itch. Mm-hmm. So the time that we're going to be happy, like really, you know, on fire with somebody 
It's getting, the window is getting smaller and smaller, Molly. But you know, I think that that three year itch is particularly American phenomenon. It's very U.S. centric. And we're talking about marriages. The one thing that a lot of this research leaves out is the idea of cohabitating couples mm-hmm. who are not married and may not even plan to get married. Right. And they don't show up in this research because what the researchers are always looking at is demographic data about when the marriages actually go to divorce court. And Fisher herself points out that in the U.S., we tend to divorce a year earlier than the four-year itch at about two or three years because chemistry, if you look at our chemistry and our biology, that's when that uh, spark, that romantic spark starts to fade, the sizzle fizzles. And uh, just as Americans have gotten really good at jumping that gun of this isn't this isn't as perfect as it was when we started, let's go ahead and cut line. And we definitely just seem to jump the gun in the U.S. compared to our friends across the pond because there was an article in the U.K. Times that looked at data from the Office of National Statistics and found that 11 years is the average time the divorced couples had stayed together before their marriage broke up. Right. You're always seeing articles come out of the U.K. about the 10 or the 11 year itch. Mm-hmm. So it definitely varies by country, but a lot of these people, no matter what year they come up with, whether it's three years, 10 years, 11 years, there's always this question of, you know, should we um, not have such stigma around divorce? Should we just expect couples to divorce at 10 or 11 years? And there's always a quote about how, uh, you know, it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think if you look for reasons to be unhappy at three years, at four years, at mm-hmm. seven years, at 10 years, you can find them. And so what they're saying, you know, relationship experts, economists, everyone is just saying you got to give your marriage more attention at these points in which there might be a slump. You know, that's sort of why the uh, the researchers put out that study about the four and the seven year slump. They're saying pay more attention to the other person then. Maybe it's uh, if it's something you know about, it's something you can get through. And I think we also have to take into account how our longer lifespans are Kind of changing the the terms of marriage, Mm -hmm. because let's say, oh, in the medieval times, couples would stay together forever, but forever meant like 11, 12, 13 years, because then they would just die. Yeah. But today, when we get married, if we stay till death do us part, I mean, death is coming later and later. (laughs) And so we're expected to stay with each other longer than we ever have before. So, I mean, it's, you can look at it either way. You can either be sort of, I guess, an excuse to get you out of a bad relationship. Like, yeah, yeah I'm so, I'm sounding like I'm looking for excuses. We're not meant to be together that long. You can look at it as a way to, um, pay attention to a relationship and get through what might be a really hard time. You can do what one politician did, uh, in Bavaria. Oh, this was great. Uh, she, her name is Gabriele Polly and she was running for the Christian Social Union Party, which is a very conservative, uh, Catholic party, I believe. And I don't think her platform for the party went over that well. And her proposal was that every marriage that takes place in Germany should be limited to seven years. Well, this was just, just civil marriages. If you get married right. in the church, then okay, same, same rules apply. But if you have a civil marriage at seven years, you'll, you can either re-up basically <laughs> and get another seven years um, under your belt or it's just dissolved and you don't have you to just fool. walk away. Yeah, you don't have to fool with uh, with divorce court or anything like that. So, uh, you know, it's I don't think that's something that's going to fly in a in our society where we're big on romance and the the till death do you part thing. But again, our marriages don't last that long. So they don't really last that long. But one thing that we have not touched on is whether or not kids play a role in the seven year itch. Tom Yule's character had children, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 
maybe that could have been what was driving him so crazy. He was feeling like a, a dowdy old daddy. <laughs> um, well, you know, in that very first study we talked about, the four and the seven year slump, that's what the researchers say that second slump, the seven year slump is about. Is that kids. now you've got like two or three kids running around. You don't get to see your spouse as often. But again, it's a matter of if you know this is going to be an issue, pay attention to it. And statistically, people with more kids are less likely to get divorced. But that might just be because you have more invested in this marriage once you have more children involved. So people stay together for the kids. Whereas Helen Fisher would say if they're over the age of five, I mean, Helen Fisher herself wouldn't say this, but she's saying our evolutionary ancestors would have said if they're five, they can, they can make themselves a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> They'll be fine. They'll be fine. They're resilient. They're not going to die because they're eaten by a wolf at this age. So when we ask the question of whether the seven year itch is a real thing, I think our answer is yes. Absolutely. Yes, but then it's got like this asterisk at the end of it, and it could also be a three-year itch, a four-year itch, a 10-year itch, an 11-year itch. I think that at any marriage, there's going to be some period where things aren't great. Yeah. And it's the question of whether you stay together or try and work it out, or if you, uh, you know. Whether you scratch that itch or you ignore it. Oh, how about? That was nice. I like that. I like that. I've been working on that one. Uh, It's probably good we got it in one friend's (laughs) podcast. So... Let us know your thoughts about the seven-year itch. Have you, do you have an itch you can't scratch? Let us know. It's mom stuff at howstuffworks.com. In the meantime, let's read a couple letters. All right, Kristen, I've got an email here from Meredith who writes on our home economics podcast. And she says, I had never thought about the origins of this subject and now agree that our condescending perception of the domestic arts is misplaced. I would like to note, however, that not all home ec courses have the rigor of those described in the podcast. Perhaps this is the result of the condescension, but learning how to make a friendship bracelet and to find my personal color palette does not a rigorous preparation for anything make. Also, I'm not sure scientific structuring of the home has been a complete good. Yes, teaching women how to maximize their time and how to stave off germs and infections has been wonderful, but the 19th century scientific boon also created norms and standards and a way of looking at child rearing that led to a lot of emphasis on perfecting one's surroundings or parenting style or following a certain manual and not screwing anything up for fear your child would turn into the wrong sort. Somehow, the domestic science scene that meant to make life easier for women has added to the fairly new notion that mothers and homemakers can mold the perfect minds and create the perfect home. They become obsessed with perfection as a result often blame the mother for anything that goes wrong with kids. This idea is the result of many trends, not just in home economics, but scientific approaches to time management housekeeping and child rearing have had some unintended repercussions on the American woman's psyche. So there we go. Kind of an interesting point on that. Well, I have an email here from Ariel and she's writing in response to our podcast on nannies because she used to be a former live in nanny for two years right out of college. And she says, women who have nannies so they can spend their days reading Us Weekly, shopping, watching soap operas, and talking on the phone with their friends should most definitely feel guilty. During my two years, I cared for the three kids, cooked, taught the little one his alphabet, potty trained him, read him bedtime stories, and got to experience so many milestones in his life that it almost made me feel guilty. What mother wouldn't want to be watching her child discover the world, especially when she has all the money, time, and resources to do so? She was physically present, but emotionally unavailable to her family. 
You can pay someone to watch your kids while you're away, make their lunches, help them with their homework, understandable. But you can't pay someone to be the constant presence in their lives when you can't be there for them. Kids aren't stupid. They're very perceptive. They know what your priorities are, and they do understand that adults have to work and be gone sometimes. But they can also tell if you're more interested in Britney Spears' latest debacle than the A-plus they got on their math test. So thank you, Ariel, for that perspective. Again, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And then also you can check out our blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You, and you can find it on howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?